historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. A 38-year-old man from Azerbaijan was arrested in Cyprus. When the police checked his car, they discovered a gun with a silencer, as well as a load of bullets. The man reportedly tried to keep a low profile, but the frequent crossing of the border between the Turkish and Greek parts of Cyprus aroused the suspicion of the authorities. Also, according to some reports, the Cyprus Intelligence Service was tipped off by an unnamed intelligence service as to the Azari assassin who reportedly aimed to harm the lives of foreigners in the country, specifically Israelis. It was further reported that some of those businessmen, Israeli businessmen, who were allegedly targeted to be assassinated, were notified ahead of time, and left Cyprus. Same type of plot to kill Israeli businessmen and others was foiled in South America, specifically in Colombia and Bolivia. Israeli intelligence is of the opinion that many attempts to carry out attacks against Israelis around the world are in all sorts of stages of planning and execution. It is led by Iran and is most likely retaliation in revenge for the assassination of Muhsan Fakharizadeh, the father of the Iranian nuclear program, and because of the explosion at Natanz nuclear facility last July. Iran may want to retaliate, but attempting to kill civilians is a whole different ballgame, strictly defying international law and basic human rights. The Iranians, of course, deny having anything to do with these attempts. They further claim that it is Israel that uses targeted killings. They're not wrong in full. Israel does implement the policy of targeted eliminations against some of its enemies. Is Israel acting in accordance with the law? with international law. This may come as a shock to some people. Targeted killings are actually permitted by international law, but it is specific. International law allows a certain type of targeted killings. The action needs to comply with a test of two major criteria. One, the target must be an absolute necessity to eliminate. You must show that no other means but lethal force are available. In other words, the person cannot be captured, he's impossible to capture, and therefore he cannot be brought to trial. And the second criteria is that the target poses an imminent danger to others so that the targeted killing is basically an act of self-defense against the impending danger of attack. This can also be called, if you want, defusing a ticking bomb. The Israeli judicial system, the Supreme Court of Israel, was the first in the world to make the first judicial decision on targeted killings. The court determined that terrorists are civilians under the law of armed conflict and therefore are lawfully subject to attack only when they directly participate in hostilities. In other words, if they're dressed in civilian clothing, but they're carrying a gun and acting as terrorists, they can be targets. The court also expanded the traditional definition of direct participation of civilians, as well as the time period during which civilians may lawfully be attacked. Let me spell it out. In the past, the Hamas terror organization claimed they have two wings, one political and the second military. With this definition, they hoped to safeguard the political leaders since they were not the actual people pulling the trigger. The Hamas leadership handed down orders to commit heinous terror attacks on Israel and at the same time took cover, hid under international law. Imagine bin Laden, former head of Al-Qaeda, former since he's dead, claiming that he is a civilian and therefore is protected by international law. Ridiculous, right? Okay, so now let's take a look at some of the examples of Israel's target eliminations. The first major action in targeting specific terrorists was due to the massacre of Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. In the early morning of September 5th, 1972, 
a group of Palestinian terrorists stormed the Olympic Village apartment of the Israeli athletes, killing two and taking nine others hostages. The terrorists were part of a group known as Black September. In an ensuing shootout at the Munich airport, the nine Israeli hostages were killed, along with five terrorists and one West German policeman. Israel reacted with an operation called Wrath of God, a secret Israeli committee chaired by Prime Minister Golda Meir and Defense Minister Moshe Dayan authorized assassination of everyone directly or indirectly involved with Black September. The hit squad code name was Bayonet. It was made up of members of the Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence agency. Bayonet spent years tracking down and killing those suspected of planning or participating in the Munich massacre. In those years, Bayonet assassinated many of the figures behind the attack, bringing to a dissolution of Black September. However, one person, the architect of the Munich massacre, was still at large. His name was Ali Hassan Salameh, also known as the Red Prince. He was living in Lebanon in relative safety. A bayonet team thought they spotted him in a small town in Norway called Lilheimer, but it was a case of mistaken identity and they had killed a Moroccan waiter living in Norway, thinking he was the Red Prince. Horrific mistake, an innocent life was taken. But it wasn't over. Israel wanted the Red Prince dead. No way he would get away with having planned the killing of the Israeli athletes and get away with it. A Mossad agent that still remains nameless, we only know him as D, was sent to Lebanon. His mission was to observe and only observe the Red Prince. Salame, the Red Prince, worked out at a gym of the Beirut International Hotel. D's job was to train at the gym and watch Salame. Six months passed by when all of a sudden, D hears someone say from the back, you're doing that exercise wrong. He turns and sees Salame talking to him. Long story short, the two become friends. They play squash together, spend hours talking, and Dee was even invited for dinner with Salome and his wife. Buddies. Dee learned about Salome's life and routine. He also knew the driving route Salome took on most days. On January 2nd, 1979, Salome left his home in a convoy of two cars and drove around the corner, where a car bomb had been placed. The blast killed Salome and his four bodyguards. Israel had closure. Everyone directly or indirectly involved with Black September was dead. And as I said before, Black September itself was dead. Fast forward to the 1990s. The 1990s were hard on Israel. It was the start of a previously unknown era, an era Israelis refer to as the era of the suicide bomber. Dozens of Israelis were killed and hundreds maimed on buses, cafes, and other places. One man stood out as the architect and bomb maker. His name was Yichye Ayash. He was one of the founders of Hamas's Izzedine Qassam Martyrs Brigades. He designed many of the bombs used in a wave of Palestinian suicide attacks on Israel. Ayash, who had a degree in electrical engineering and was nicknamed the Engineer, created bombs that killed more than 80 Israelis and maimed 400 others. He was working on his bombs concealed in Gaza, and it seemed impossible to capture him. A Hamas informant, a family member of Ayash, smuggled a phone out and back into Gaza so it could be turned into a bomb. At 8 a.m. on the 5th of January, 1996, Ayash's father called him. Ayash picked it up and spoke with his father. Overhead, an Israeli plane picked up the conversation and relayed it to an Israeli command post. When it was confirmed that it was indeed Ayash on the phone, a remote detonated it, killing Ayash instantly. But in the short term, the killing of Ayash did not stop the suicide bombers. As a matter of fact... It even increased attacks in what Hamas termed revenge. Early 2000, the Palestinians saw their chance 
to turn things around. They thought they had figured out Israel's weakness and they would exploit it. They thought they smelled victory. This is where for a moment I'd like to tell you about the culture of extreme Muslim terror. They aren't totally unrealistic in thinking that by force alone, they will defeat the West. They know it is impossible. There's something else that they think will ultimately bring down the West, and it has to do with how they see Western culture. If I was to ask you what is most important to you, what value is the most important to you? You'd probably say your family, your kids, your community, maybe joy of life. No. According to radical Islam, the most important value to Westerners is money. Take away their money, and they will implode. They see the West as a large, say, ball with a thin crust. The inside, according to this radical Islam, is all totally rotten. Break the crust, break the surface, and like I said, it'll all implode. Now, I just want to explain for a second personal incident I had on the Temple Mount, in other words, right by the Dome of the Rock, at a group of tourists, and we were sitting there and speaking and touring, and I saw a man, a Muslim man, look at me, and he was listening intently. He wanted to make sure that I wasn't making any mistakes for talking about Islam. He then smiled and asked if he could speak to the group as well. I said, of course, go ahead. And he started talking. And one of the first things he said to them is, you Westerners have no idea what family values are about. I kind of grinned to myself because these tourists I had actually knew some of them from Minnesota and they were the ones taking care of their family, paying college tuition for their kids, donating time and money to their community. And this guy was telling them, you don't know what family and community values are about. Now, this gentleman was in no means a radical Muslim. It was clear he spoke to me. It was very nice. Having said that, he was of the culture of thinking that the West really cares or Westerners really care just about money. Now, as I said before, take away their money and the society will implode according to radical Islam. The suicide bomber was the weapon of mass destruction that'll make this happen. Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and even the Palestinian Liberation Organization groups like Tanzim were convinced that Israelis would hide and then run, that Israeli society would fall apart, implode. I remember once speaking to a West Bank Palestinian resident, a leader of the Palestinian Authority, who in a moment of truth told me that they are patient and will outlast the Jewish state. I replied with a smile and said, let me tell you about Jewish history, about Jewish resilience and survival. You really don't know us. But they tried. They went on the attack. Between 2001 and 2004, every week seemed to have a suicide bomber strike. Over 1,000 Israeli lives were lost and thousands were injured. Tourism to Israel came to a halt. People feared going to cafes and restaurants. People feared taking public transportation. But the radical Muslim organizations were wrong. They were wrong big time. As I said, they have no idea who we are. They have our value system all wrong. It is fascinating to me that strong Israeli reaction came only after the Park Hotel Passover Seder massacre in Netanya a suicide bomber who walked into the Passover Seder at the hotel, blew himself up, killing 30 people and injuring 140. There were many previous bloody attacks before the Passover bombing. But the Passover bombing, Israelis felt they were attacked Jewishly. The state of Israel, which was established as a safe haven for the Jews from anti-Semitism, pogroms, and of course, the never again slogan derived from the Holocaust, was once again exposed and felt attacked Jewishly, the Israeli public saw the bloody massacre of Jews at the Passover Seder. And that is when Israel unleashed its wrath. But wisely, the radical Muslim leadership was held responsible. They would no longer be immune from justice, no more mercy. The leader of Hamas, Ahmad Ismail Yassin, a quadriplegic, 
the founder and spiritual leader of Hamas, gave the order to kill Israelis. As far as he was concerned, every Israeli man, woman, and child was a soldier and hence will not be spared. On the 22nd of March, 2004, while he was being wheeled out of an early morning prayer session in Gaza City, an Israeli Apache helicopter gunship fired Hellfire missiles at Yassin and both of his bodyguards. Before the attack, Israeli F-16 jets flew overhead to obscure the noise of the approaching helicopters. Yassin always used the same direction every morning to go to the same mosque in the Sabra district that is less than 100 yards from his home. Yassin felt immune, but Israel's policy had changed. His replacement, named Rantisi, held a press conference that evening and promised that hell would be brought upon Israel. Two weeks later, he was dead as well. And then the next one... And the next one, Israel had killed off the entire leadership of Hamas. It was so blatant that at one point, remember Jay Leno in his talk show had made a joke and the joke was, what do Israelis call the leadership of Hamas? And his answer was a temp job. I don't mean to make a joke out of this, but everybody knew, including Jay Leno, what Israel's strategy was. Fast forward a few more years. A man named Mahmoud El-Mabkhuch was the chief weapons negotiator for Hamas. He was their main contact to Tehran and in charge of all the logistic needs for the rocket attacks on Israel coming from the Gaza Strip. Just to understand who this man is and what he stands for or what he stood for, Mabkhuch gave an interview to Al Jazeera about the murder of two Israeli soldiers in 1989. He described in detail and pride how he and his accomplice dressed as Orthodox Jews and how they had kidnapped two Israeli soldiers named Avi Sesportas and Ilan Saadon. He went on to describe how he shot one of the soldiers in the face. He also described, after killing the two, how they had trampled on the bodies and photographed them in the process. When asked whether he regretted the killings, Mabchuch said that his only regret was not having shot the second Israeli in the face. But unfortunately, he added, he had been sitting at the wheel of the car. On January 19th, 2010, Abkhuch arrived in Dubai on Emirates flight EK-912 from Damascus. He handed the immigration control officer a Palestinian passport under a false name. A Mossad team had expected Mabkhuch at the terminal and notified the others, who then followed him to his hotel. At 8 p.m., six Mossad agents took up their positions in the hallway outside Mabkhuch's hotel room. A specialist manipulated the electronic lock to his door gaining easy access. At 8.24 p.m., Mabkhuch returned to the hotel through the revolving door in the lobby, carrying a plastic bag with new shoes. He took the elevator to the second floor. He didn't notice the man wearing a hotel uniform or the woman in a dark wig. Mabkhuch went into his room. It is unlikely that his encounter with the four Mossad agents waiting behind the door lasted very long. The Mossad agents left the El Bustan Hotel in groups of two and took taxis to the airport. They vanished into thin air. Mabchuk's body was discovered only five days later. Now fast forward a few more years, and the latest and the last example of a target elimination, one that I spoke of in earlier episodes, is that of Muhsan Fokhorizadeh, the Iranian nuclear scientist in charge of their nuclear program. Iran always denied their quest for a nuke, but spared no rhetoric of their desire to eliminate Israel from world maps. Israel takes this threat seriously. Fokhorizadeh, 59 years of age, a physicist, an officer in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and a professor at Imam Hussein University in Tehran was killed on November 27, 2020, a little under a year ago. He was on his route with his wife from their vacation home. He was driving his own vehicle with his wife sitting in the passenger seat beside him and his bodyguards in separate cars behind him. Parked at a junction on the route 
was a blue Nissan pickup truck armed with precise weapon, a camera, and explosives. When Fakharizadeh was spotted nearing the Nissan truck, artificial intelligence verified it was him, and then a hail of bullets were fired. Actually, a total of 15 bullets were fired within seconds. The gunfire was activated from an undisclosed location thousands of miles away. It was over quickly and no one else was hit or injured. The Nissan pickup then proceeded to explode, leaving very little evidence for investigators. The operation was termed a success since not only Fakharizada found his death, but nobody else had died or was injured. However, Target eliminations, unfortunately, often kill and injure innocent bystanders. Israel tries to avoid this as much as possible. Often operations were called off due to the fear of civilian casualty, but it does happen. A reporter named Amos Ahar-El from the left-leaning Haaretz newspaper says a civilian casualties ratio in 2005 was 1 to 28, meaning one civilian killed for every 28 targeted kills. In 2007 and 2008, the ratio dropped to a level of less than 1 to 30, or 2 to 3 percent of the total casualties being civilians. Now, can we live with that ratio? That is a good question. There are opponents in Israel to targeted killings. They state that target eliminations go against democratic values and human rights. They also claim that collateral damage, that is innocent bystanders of course, is too heavy of a price to pay, once again for democracy that values human life. They conclude and say it has not been proven that target eliminations actually achieve their goal of reducing or stopping terror acts. However, there are also those that are pro-targeted killings. And they say that many eliminations foiled potential attacks, saving many lives. They also say that we need to keep the terrorists on the run. Don't give them time to plan and act. If they're being targeted, they'll be fleeing the entire time. Israel's policy of targeting and killing Hamas leadership responsible for sending out suicide bombers caused a halt on the part of Hamas. They simply stopped, realizing the lives were on the line. Does that go to prove that it does work? It may be surprising to hear that the U.S. president that ordered the most targeted killings was the more liberal Barack Obama. One thing is for sure, polls conducted in Israel state that an overwhelming percentage of Israelis support targeted eliminations as a last resort. To conclude, I'd like to say that Israel's security has been challenged over the years on many levels. There was conventional warfare in an attempt to eradicate Israel. Israel reacted by building an invincible army called the Israeli Defense Forces. There was economic warfare, past and present, in an attempt to label Israel as a pariah state, hoping the world nations turn their backs on Israel. Israel reacted with brain power, creating technology, medicine, etc., etc., which world nations not only need for their everyday life, but also admire and invest in the Israeli innovation. Creation of weapons of mass destruction and terror, an attempt to not only disrupt Israeli lives and normalcy, but also to threaten its very existence, Israel reacts with different measures, including last resort targeted eliminations. The so-called chess game between Israel and its enemies will not end soon. However, The motivation to see Israel gone on part of our enemies has diminished and even no longer exists. Voices from Iraq are calling for talks with Israel. Just this week, a secret Sudanese government mission visited Israel with the intent to normalize relations. Sudan, not too long ago, was a radical enemy of Israel. As we speak, these shifts in policy are happening. Israeli security forces will continue to safeguard the homeland with smart and effective means, and at the same time, reach out the hand of negotiations, normalcy, and possible peace. If you like the Inside Israel podcast, 
please share with others. If you are listening via the Apple app, please rank us as a five. You can access all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon podcasts, and also on InsideIsrael.fm. FM.